the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I found out from the news, and they told us, they told the family that that was not even a possibility for him. So she flat out lied, flat out lied to us. We have a system that does not apply punishment equally for all citizens. If you're a person of color or if you're poor, you're not going to get justice in Texas. It does not happen. I want people to research different cases, not just my brothers. Some of them have already been executed, and there are people here that are killed, even though they never kill anybody. Welcome to the First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. Wow, I almost flubbed that in five seconds in. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. She's sipping on a Diet Coke. I just made one of those, uh, have you seen it on TikTok, the cheesy pickle snack? No, please tell me. You basically just slap a piece of cheese into a frying pan and let it get all like boily on the side. And then you put a pickle in it and then wrap it up like a little pickle hot dog. Is it amazing? Here it is. You're just wait. Is it good? It's delicious. Oh my god! I'm gonna do that when we're off this recording session. If you have some cheese and a pickle, I highly recommend it. Ten out of ten. I'm here for this. Should we just jump into the day today? I would love that. So you'll like it today, Lex. Manatee Appreciation Day. Oh, best animal! It's just like a floating inflated tube sock. Just like a floating blob with a cute little face who's just here for the joy and for the kelp. So buoyant and sweet. I just love them so much. Um, It's also Piano Day, and it is National Lemon Chiffon Cake Day. Very, very distinct. Oddly specific, but I mean, it's not. I'm not a fan, but I support anyone who wants to get their lemon cake on. That's right. Um, Well, other than that, I mean, join our Patreon. Uh, Go get some merch. We're having 50 plus episodes on Patreon. Lots of fun stuff for you if you can't get enough of first degree. Head on over there. But we're going to get into today's episode. So that's enough of that. So let's turn on the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. So we all like to think that if you choose to do the crime, you do the time. Proportionately in sentencing, especially when it comes to violent crime, is something we hope will be approached with fairness and balance by both the legislature and the criminal justice system. But here in the United States, this isn't always the case. When convicted child sex predators or mass shooters face the punishment phase of their trials in states that don't have the death penalty, The victims, their families, and the public can generally be confident that the perpetrators will feel the full force of the law. You go to prison for life. You're done. But at least you're alive. You get to see your family. But what happens when you're convicted under very questionable circumstances for something serious that you didn't even do? And then the legal consequences mean you could lose your life. This is what happens in Texas, which has the highest and most prolific rate of executions in the country per capita. And as you'll hear in today's story, 
a terrible cascade of events has resulted in one Texan man languishing on death row despite not even committing the act he's been convicted of. We begin today's case on January 2nd of 1996. And if you were born on this day, you're literally right on the cusp of millennials and Gen Z. So you won't have known a life without access to the internet, which is pretty crazy. Sad for you because Oregon Trail was cool. What? I was saying sad for them because Oregon Trail was cool. I know. And they had to, we had to buy the disc version. We couldn't even do it online. Uh, those were the good old days. So in 1996, we were listening to music on CDs. We were watching and recording our favorite movie and TV shows on VCRs. And pagers were all the rage for those who needed or wanted to be reachable 24-7. On the Billboard charts, Mariah Carey and Boys to Men reigned number one for the six weeks straight for their iconic ballad pop, One Sweet Day. And while fellow R&B superstar Whitney Houston was at number two with Exhale Shoop Shoop. Moviegoers were hitting the theaters to see the Disney original animated classics Toy Story, which is one of the best movies ever. And Jumanji was also in theaters, which is one of the other best movies ever. A nice feel-good movie. So the setting for today's case is Kerrville, Texas. Situated in south-central Texas in Kerr County, the city of around 24,500 people is located around 65 miles northwest of San Antonio. It was founded in 1989. The city is named after James Kerr, who served as a major during the Texas Revolution over half a decade earlier. So from the Reconstruction era onwards, the city's economy was initially based in lumber, produce, and ranching, with cattle driving becoming prominent in the area as well. And Kerrville is also home to Texas's official state arts and crafts fair and the annual Kerrville Folk Festival. Our first story for today's case is named Terry, and Terry didn't grow up in Kerrville. She grew up in San Antonio, where she was the oldest of eight children and the only girl in a big blended family. And as the oldest in the family, she always kind of felt like a protector. I have seven brothers. I do have a good relationship with all of my brothers, and I love each and every one of them. I have two real brothers, three half-brothers and two step-brothers, but I love them each like they were my real brothers. We were all born and raised in San Antonio, Texas, and it's a fairly decent-sized city, but we did spend a great amount of time in a country setting. My grandparents owned a lot of property about an hour north of San Antonio. Most of our life was either at my grandparents' property or playing sports. We were all athletes, so that was pretty much our entire childhood, spending time with our grandparents, being out on the property, that type of thing. Of all of the other children, Terry was the closest to her kid brother, Jeff, who was born on August 19th of 1973. Jeff's especially sweet and caring nature means he and Terry share a special bond. Jeff is the one that I'm most protective of, and it has been that way since we were kids. Of all of my brothers, and you know, everybody of course has their own personality, Jeff is the most kind and genuine, and he has the biggest heart of any of us. But while all of the siblings had each other, life wasn't all sunshine and rainbows for the Wood kids. Terry and Jeff's parents split up when the kids were little, and their father would go on to get remarried. The children grew up in a home where severe beatings and emotional abuse dished out by their father were just part of their daily lives. And according to Terry, Jeff got it the worst. This resulted in lifelong mental health and behavioral issues for Jeff, which only became exacerbated over time. We had a rough childhood, I suppose. My parents got divorced when I was five. Jeff was three, and Joel had just been born, so he was less than a year old. And my mom didn't want to 
raise children. <laughs> so she left us with my dad and my soon-to-be stepmother that was not very nice to us for a long time. We have a lot of issues that we've had to deal with. We were excessively punished for lots of different things. Jeff got the brunt of most of it. My grandparents actually took my parents, my dad and my stepmom to court to get visitation of us. So they were court ordered and we were thankful for that because that was our refuge away from the almost daily punishment. After finishing school, Terry moved out. And after attending college, she got married and gave birth to a son before settling in Kerrville. Around 1994, 21-year-old Jeff followed his big sister, Terry, to Kerrville also. And with him, he brought his girlfriend, Nadia, and their baby daughter. And her name is Paige. Then the two siblings and their little nuclear families, they all moved in together. We ended up moving to Kerrville, Jeff and I, and his girlfriend, Nadia. And Paige, they had had Paige at the time, and it was me and my husband and our first son. So this really was an idyllic time in Jeff and Terry's lives, being able to have both their families living together under one roof, fostering a loving and family-focused atmosphere. And things were going really, really well for the siblings, their spouses, and their kids. It was exactly the kind of environment that Terry and Jeff had dreamed of as children, and they were now exceptionally grateful to have as adults. It was all happy. We had so much fun work, go home, go to the river, go paddle boating, go fishing. We were really always, always outdoors. In 1995, Terry decided that she wanted to go back to school to train to become a teacher, which meant that her little family had to move out from the home she shared with her little brother and his little family. So with this decision, Terry felt really guilty. And while nothing that was to come should ever be considered Terry's fault, This time did mark a distinct sliding doors moment for Jeff and was key to everything that happened next. I feel guilty. I didn't want to be in Kerrville anymore. And so my husband and I moved out. I would say that it's the beginning of the end for Jeff and it like it breaks my heart. You know, if I didn't move, Jeff wouldn't be in this situation. You know, I often blame myself for that. Before we continue, I want to point out that you'll hear the guilt in Terry's voice as she shares her experience. And Terry, I know you're listening. This has never been your fault and your strength is inspiring. So thank you for all you're doing. And we're just going to take it from there. So after Terry and her husband moved out, Jeff and Nadia couldn't afford to stay in the house that they all shared on their own. And while Terry really felt bad about this at the time, she rightfully prioritized her education and her family's future. And she really just didn't want to put her dreams on hold. Right. And to find affordable housing, Jeff and Nadia moved to a trailer and had Nadia's sister move in with them. But Nadia's sister didn't come alone. She wanted to move in with her boyfriend, a 20-year-old named Daniel Renault, or Danny, as we'll mostly refer to him going forward. And a name worth remembering because he's a key figure in this case. Nadia allowed her little sister and her boyfriend to move in with them. So Jeff had not even known Danny before like he was thrown into a situation where he was moving in. Daniel Earl Renau, a.k.a. Danny, was born in Jacksonville, Florida on April 14th of 1975, and he grew up as an army brat. He spent many formative years in Kansas near Fort Riley and dropped out of school his senior year. After that, he drifted around and worked in construction in Texas. 
And as far as his personality, we're going to be frank with you. It doesn't seem like many people really liked Danny. Right. And according to court documents, he exhibited problematic antisocial behavior, which would later be diagnosed as a symptom of a severe personality disorder. And he also had a history of drug and alcohol abuse, which are substances known to aggravate and exacerbate personality disorders. And Terry straight up did not like Danny. She could tell he was bad news and she wasn't the only one. Everybody was afraid of him and his volatile, aggressive personality. At first, when we all first met him, he was just, I guess, trying to impress us because he came across as nice. But it didn't take long for that to go downhill. We did find out that he had a cocaine problem and he did all kinds of criminal activity to support said habit. Nobody liked Danny, not even Nadia's little sister. She was scared of him. Everybody was scared of him. For the record, Nadia's little sister is Danny's girlfriend. So if she doesn't like him, that tells you all you need to know about Danny, really. So even though Terry had moved out, she would still visit her little brother and his family often. And one day, Terry walked in and found Jeff's baby daughter, Paige, brace yourselves, playing with a loaded gun that Danny had left laying around. So Terry, as anyone should, rightfully lose their mind over something like this. The negligence, it's just next level. And Danny's response to being chastised was to threaten violence. First of all, you never, ever have a gun where a child can get to it, ever. But Danny had those things laying around. And when I walked into the house and when my husband walked into the house, Paige was playing with a loaded gun and I flipped out and I told him that I would not only call police, but I would call Child Protective Services. Danny was high, but he flipped out on all of us and said, you know, if you ever call the police or say anything that I do, I'll kill everybody and I'll start with her. Terry was obviously right to be concerned. Danny behaved so unpredictably, and he easily intimidated people who were more reserved, like Jeff, who had never been in trouble with anybody. But the other thing with Jeff was that due to a learning disability and his childhood trauma, he was really, really eager to please. He didn't question authority, and he was more easily influenced than would be expected, and really took the blame for others as a means of fitting in. And this was a troubling situation because Danny was clearly dangerous, but because everybody feared him, no one knew how to get rid of him without setting him off. So of course, when you put Jeff in a room with Danny's hair trigger temper, which could turn on a dime, it was an extremely unhealthy dynamic for Jeff. They wanted him out of the house. They really did. They didn't like him, but everybody was scared of him at that point in time. Danny and Jeff often walked down to the local Texaco gas station slash convenience store place, which was really close to where they lived. And this became something that they did pretty much daily. And because they went so often, they got to know the staff there and began to have friendly rapport with them. And try to clock these names because they are very important to the story. Right. So central to this whole thing is the convenience store manager. His name is William Bill Bunker. And we're going to refer to him as Bill going forward. Then there was the convenience store clerk, a 31-year-old named Chris Kieran, who had only been living in Kerrville for two years. This was the little gas station that was closest to their house, and they were in there several times a day. They didn't hang out on the outside, but they both knew and had conversations with them when they went in there. In December of 95, 
convenience store manager Bill had a proposition of sorts for Danny and Jeff. And it was an illegal one. So Bill suggested that Danny and Jeff rob the convenience store as a sort of inside job. Everyone who works there would be on board. Store clerk Chris would be in on it too as a cooperating employee who was quote unquote held up at gunpoint. So then after the robbery, the four men could split the money four ways. The manager, the clerk, Danny, and Jeff. So the manager of the store is essentially trying to mastermind this. Okay, so he's not winning employee of the year. That's not great, but that's neither here nor there. Bill was so enthusiastic about this that he even had Danny and Jeff come into the store and give him like a tour and shared all the details about how the store worked so they could pull this off and also show them where the store security video recorder was. He approached several people about this proposition before he approached Danny and Jeff. And everybody had turned him down, didn't want any part of to do with it. But the manager of the store approached them. They talked about it. And he, you know, said, okay, well, it's right after the holidays. We're going to have an excessive amount of money. He walked them through the whole thing and said, don't worry about it. We're all just going to get our share of the money. So for a couple of young guys who have no money, you can see how this might be tempting. What could go wrong if the store's manager was in on this plan? And it was a proposition that they entertained, at least briefly. And the guys openly talked about this in front of others, including Terry. They even talked about when this whole thing was supposed to go down. New Year's Day of 1996. Because no one would be coming to collect the cash from the stores until January 2nd, meaning that the register would be full. So Terry, being the protective big sister she was, she warned Jeff not to get involved. He'd only known Danny for a couple of months, and he'd never been in trouble with the law before, so why start now? Now it seemed as though Jeff was being roped into something that could land him in jail, and as a big sister, she wasn't about that. We all knew it. They talked about it. Other people knew it. They were dumb. They were young and dumb. So Jeff took Terry's advice, and he decided to pull out of the plan. And then convenience store clerk, Chris, he pulled out of the plan too. Then when New Year's Day passed, without the robbery occurring, Terry thought to herself, okay, the threat is gone. Chris, he backed out. My brother backed out. And that was the end of the plan. Everybody thought, okay, well, you know, that time has come and gone because Bill had told them, I'm going to be depositing the money on the second. If you're going to do it, it has to be this day. People talk smack all the time. And we really didn't wholeheartedly believe that they would even do it. But the next day when Terry was at work, a knock at her front door changed everything for her. When her husband opened the door, he saw Jeff and Danny standing there with a safe. When Terry got home and found out what was going on, she freaked out. When I got home and saw that the safe was there in the house, I was like, what the fuck are y'all doing? Get that shit out of the house. Get it out of the house right now. So they went out on the property and they buried the safe in our backyard. It wasn't long until the police showed up and they weren't there just to talk about a robbery. They were there to talk about a murder. Things were an absolute blur for Terry as she struggled with so many different questions. Who had been killed and why? Who was the murderer and how was all of this going to play out? To answer all these questions, you know the drill. We gotta go back. 
So here's what we know. We know that back in December 1995, after talking it over with his sister, Terry, Jeff told Danny he didn't want to participate in this inside job plan to rob the Texaco convenience store gas station. Just before 6 a.m. on January 2nd, 1996, Danny and Jeff were about to head 65 miles south of Kerrville to the town of Divine, where Terry also lived. Jeff had borrowed his brother's pickup truck, so the purpose of this trip to Divine was to return the vehicle. Before hitting the road, they needed to stop at the gas station to get some snacks and drink for the ride, you know, as you do. And as Danny got into the truck, Jeff saw that Danny had a 22 caliber pistol with him. This made Jeff feel extremely uncomfortable. Right. So Jeff said, hey, Danny, can you go leave the gun at home? Like, we don't need a gun. We're going to return a truck. Not really about this. So Danny agreed, and he actually headed back into the house, and he told Jeff he was going to put the gun back. But he didn't. But that was unbeknownst to Jeff. Danny, in fact, had snuck the gun anyway. And this exchange about this gun was witnessed by Jeff's partner, Nadia, and her sister as well. Jeff had no knowledge that Danny even had a gun on him at that point in time. Jeff drove them to the gas station and waited outside in the pickup while Danny headed inside. But then suddenly a gunshot rang through the cold morning air. Jeff jumped out of the pickup and ran inside to be confronted with his absolute worst nightmare. Right. What he saw was Chris, who, remember, he is the convenience store clerk and he's a friend of Danny and Jeff's. Chris is laying dead on the floor behind the counter. Yeah, it's a shock because apparently when Danny entered the store, he ordered Chris to go into the back room. As Chris failed to do as Danny ordered, Danny shot him in the head right between the eyes, which killed him instantly. Jeff was stunned. He told Danny that he wanted nothing to do with any robbery, let alone a murder. Jeff was under the impression that Danny had left his gun at home. And murder, nor any sort of threat of violence, was ever a part of the original plan anyway. Jeff found it impossible to comprehend both why Danny would do this to Chris and why he'd implicate somebody else. Right. So he's standing in there, and according to him, the next thing he knew, Danny was screaming at him to help him get the safe into the cash box. So Jeff, again, wanted no part of this. He'd backed out of this plan, and so had Chris, the person who was shot. But Danny pointed the gun at him, threatening to kill both Nadia and Paige, his partner and his baby, if he didn't cooperate. So given the fact that Danny had just literally killed their mutual friend, he took this threat pretty seriously. Jeff was still scared the whole time. He was really concerned for his daughter. The next thing is he's going to kill everybody in the family. So he was worried that, you know, he was going to go after Paige and my mom. And it just made it all too real. Danny and Jeff dragged the safe and cash box containing around 11 grand in cash and checks out to the pickup. They also took the store's VCR and the tape inside. Chris's body was ultimately found by some customers when they came into the station to pay for gas. Meanwhile, Danny and Jeff eventually turned up with the safe at Jeff's parents' place. The pair tried to pry the safe open using a blowtorch and a sledgehammer. The men then went to Terry's house, where police eventually arrived after speaking with witnesses, including a delivery driver. Witnesses saw the men parked in the parking lot prior to the murder, and the previous day, a police officer saw Danny and Jeff across the street from the gas station. I don't know how it came to be that they were on them so fast. Maybe it was the amount of time they hung out at the station and on camera. All I know is that when the police came, we didn't lie to them. We told them the safe is in the backyard. We went and dug it up. I didn't want anybody else to get in trouble. 
Everybody loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. So it's going to take you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. I'm really feeling this because Lex and I both are really like into Gatsby stuff right now. So I am loving the vibe of this game. And you're going to step into the role as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. It's perfect for all of the firsties out there. There's mystery, danger, and romance as you search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. And you can customize your very own luxuries a state island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, or cleanup needed. There's over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And there are more than 60 add ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Get started today and get after your goals. Plus, Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. For me, I was really struggling to get enough protein. I always do. But Factor's meals are protein-packed, and they're so good. And it's so easy when I'm slammed busy working in the middle of the day to just have lunch right there, not needing to do anything, except heat it up. Head to factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 and use code DEGREE50 to get 50% off. That's code DEGREE50 at factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 to get 50% off. Okay, so listen, we are busy ladies over here on The First Degree, and when I have a moment of free time, I don't want to spend it grocery shopping. I want to spend it rotting on the couch and watching reality TV, and that is why I love Thrive Market. So Thrive Market is a go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials, and the convenience of getting everything online then quickly shipped to my doorstop is such a huge time saver. So Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They actually restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So you can go on their website and use their filters to suit any of your lifestyle needs. If you're allergic to a certain ingredient, if you just don't want to have it in your life, that's why Thrive Market is so awesome. So whether you're looking for organic snacks for your kids or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free pantry essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with just a few clicks. I love this so much because I don't want to read every ingredient when I go to the grocery store. It's so easy to do it online, honestly, when I'm rotting on the couch. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash first for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash first. Thrivemarket.com slash first. After Chris Kieran was found murdered at his Texaco convenience store job, Jeff and Danny were taken down to the police station for questioning. Once he was in custody, he was kept awake for hours, and officers refused to let him sleep or eat. Feeling coerced, hungry, and exhausted, he ultimately gave two statements. Initially, Jeff claimed that he didn't hear the gunshot ring out because he was listening to loud music when Danny went into the store. But later, he stated that he did hear the gunshot and ran inside, where Danny forced him to steal the safe, cash box, and VCR. 
Eventually, under duress, Jeff told the cops what they wanted to hear and confessed. It failed from the very get-go. First of all, my brother was not allowed an attorney. And when he was arrested, he was put in his cell. They kept waking him up. They didn't give him food. They didn't give him water. He gave multiple statements. And so the first one went along with how everything went. But they didn't believe him, and they wanted their own <laughs> agenda. I don't, I don't know. I'm not very thrilled with the Kerrville Police Department at all. I hold a lot of resentment for everything that they did to him, as well as the prosecutor at the time. Jeff led police to the murder weapon, where Danny had thrown it out of the pickup in a nearby county. And like Jeff, Danny also confessed, and both men were charged with first-degree murder. Danny and Jeff were tried separately, with Danny's trial kicking off first in March of 1997. Despite his confession, Danny pleaded not guilty. Prosecutors told the court that Danny came up with the whole idea and that he ran the show himself. So it was really no surprise when Danny was found guilty and he was sentenced to death. This is Texas, people. And as we mentioned at the top of this episode, they do not hold back when doling out the death penalty. Before Jeff could be tried, the issue of his competency came up. You'll recall that we mentioned that Jeff has a learning disability. In addition to his complex mental health issues arising from his childhood, he also had ADHD and an IQ of only 80, which meant that he took special education classes at school. So, of course, his severe psychological and emotional issues needed to be considered. Right. And they conducted a competency hearing, and Jeff was initially found incompetent in October of 97, given he was exhibiting delusional and paranoid thought processes. But only two weeks later, it was a completely different decision. Jeff was suddenly deemed completely confident by a different jury. And this was despite both neuropsychologist evidence to the contrary, which the jury didn't hear, and Jeff's family's deep concern about the lack of rigor in the evaluation process, which only assessed his learning disability, not his mental health or his ability to be rational. He has a low IQ, but more importantly, he has a processing disorder. So he can know something and you can drill it and he can give it to you like short-term memory, but ask him about that thing 20 minutes later and it's gone. And so he had a really hard time in school and he frequently got hit for it because his grades were not great. He was initially found incompetent to stand trial. And so he went to Vernon State Hospital and was there less than two weeks. And then magically he was found competent. But nobody really did an evaluation on him. You can't treat a processing disorder like my brother have. By the time Jeff's trial began in 1988, he recanted both of his police statements. And to make things more frustrating for his family, there was a lot of misinformation on the news coverage before the trial even began. And that's another thing that like frustrates me to no end is the media, they tell a story of what they hear in court, but not everything gets told in court. Jeff and Danny weren't friends. None of us were really friends with Danny. We were thrown into a situation where he was an acquaintance and he had known Danny for less than three months at the time that this happened. So after Terry gave an initial police statement early on, no one from the prosecution or defense contacted her to ask her to testify at Jeff's trial, which is kind of crazy given all she'd witnessed the day it had occurred and in the events prior. I mean, like I said, Jeff and Danny showed up at her house with the safe. Why wouldn't the defense at least call her to ask, 
who was running the show that day and get her perspective, anything. And it actually gets worse. According to Terry, she had no idea the trial was even underway as it was unfolding. She told us there was apparently a gag order in place during the proceedings. So she had no idea the trial had even happened. And we couldn't find evidence of this gag order, but we also couldn't find evidence that it didn't exist. There wasn't any coverage of it. So take that as it is. They got statements from all of us. We met with the lawyer. They decided for whatever reason that they weren't going to use it. I don't know why. I, I still question that to this day. There were so many of us that were there that had details. And we talked about those details, but nobody cared. We didn't actually know that a trial was going on. My dad was subpoenaed to go to court and he was deemed a hostile witness because the prosecution pulled him as a witness. So he wasn't allowed to testify for my brother. He wasn't allowed to even tell us that a trial was going on. There was a gag order. And so my dad didn't even tell any of us that the trial was, Jeff's trial was actually even happening. None of us were there. The defense argued that Jeff had no idea Danny planned to kill Chris and only complied with the robbery because he was under duress. But frustratingly, some of the witness evidence that the prosecution used to convict Danny was actually excluded from Jeff's trial. And this is kind of an obvious thing that happens. They're pushing one narrative to convict Danny in his trial. It's Danny's the mastermind, convict him. He's obviously to blame. And in Jeff's trial, they're going to do the same thing. So the same evidence that they deemed appropriate in Danny's trial to push that narrative isn't going to work. You can't put a witness on the stand who said Danny was the mastermind and also someone who said Jeff was the same witness, right? So there was a lot of evidence excluded from Jeff's trial due to motions that the prosecution made that was included in Danny's trial. These theories kind of contradicted each other. Like the part where Jeff told Danny to leave the pistol at the house before they left for the gas station. This was witnessed by his girlfriend, Nadia. And they had no idea Danny had brought it along with him anyway. So Nadia, who witnessed the exchange, was not permitted to testify in Jeff's trial, even though she witnessed the fact that he snuck this gun back into the truck. And not only that, there was evidence that when Danny was at the house before going to the gas station, he told Nadia and her sister that he was going to kill Chris because Danny was pissed that Chris had backed out. There was a lot of evidence and a lot of stuff that did not get heard at my brother's trial that, you know, did get heard at Danny's trial that could have helped Jeff in a way. They knew that Jeff was not even in the building when the murder happened. They knew that Jeff wasn't even aware that Danny had a gun. And at Danny's trial, all of that evidence was presented and used to convict Danny. But that evidence was never allowed at my brother's trial. At Danny's trial, everything was there. Danny was the one that did all of this. In Jeff's trial, she made him out to be the monster. Jeff was the ringleader. Jeff was the planner. That's what the jury heard. And so Jeff was already, well, this isn't going to be fair. He's not going to help me. He didn't object to the things that Jeff wanted him to object to. And he's like, look, you're my lawyer. You do what I tell you. And he didn't. Two days after Jeff's trial commenced, there was a verdict. Jeff was found guilty. The jurors believed that my brother was the mastermind because that's what she painted him to be. So they believed her and all of her stuff when she knew that he was not the mastermind. She knew it. And she painted him that way anyway. 
Unhappy with the ineffectiveness of his representation, Jeff asked if he could represent himself during the penalty phase of the proceedings. And so it came to the point in the trial that Jeff wanted to fire the lawyer. And the judge would not allow that to happen. Told Jeff, I don't think that you're competent enough to represent yourself. So the judge denied Jeff's request to represent himself. And his reason was that he was incompetent. This is despite the fact that Jeff had only recently been deemed competent to stand trial after he had been first deemed incompetent. So like, which one is it? And like so many other things in this case, it makes zero sense. It's another contradiction. There's a lot of hypocrisy and weird shit going on. That's so frustrating. Mm -hmm. So then Jeff asked his attorney not to call any penalty phase witnesses. And to be clear, these would be people trying to offer mitigating circumstances, which would help a jury make a determination on a fair punishment. And remember, we're in Texas. This meant that the death penalty is just always on the table. Jeff's instructions for his attorney not to call witnesses on his behalf was what they considered suicide. So if that's the case, why wasn't a competency hearing requested right then and right there? Right. And the court heard that while Jeff had participated in some prior burglaries with Danny, who had stolen firearms, etc., before Danny entered his life, Jeff had no criminal record, let alone anything resembling violence. On March 2nd, 1998, five days after the verdict, Jeff was sentenced to death. Terry learned about Jeff's sentence in one of the most shocking ways possible for a relative of the accused. And to make matters worse, their dad, who was prevented from discussing his court testimony with the family, was entirely unsympathetic to Terry's reaction. Remember, Terry had no idea her brother's trial had even started. And now she finds out in one foul swoop that not only had this trial commenced without her knowledge, but her brother had been sentenced to be executed. I found out from the news. They told the family that that was not even a possibility for him. So she flat out lied, flat out lied to us. I called my father. I got in a fight with him. How could you do this? How could you not tell us? And I told him that I didn't care that he was under gag order. This was family. We should have known. He's like, well, I'm not going to get myself in trouble for bad decisions that my children make. So how is a death sentence when you don't even pull the trigger possible? So we know that being charged as an accomplice is pretty widely accepted if you're party to a serious crime. But this sounds wrong in some way. It sounds unjust, especially given the unique circumstances we see here in Jeff's case. But this is how it's possible. In Texas, there's something called the law of parties. And this is similar to what other jurisdictions called the felony murder rule. Its legislation is designed to prosecute gang participation in violent crimes. And taken at its most literal, the law suggests that anybody who participates in a crime is criminally responsible for any offenses committed. Right. But worse than that, in Texas, prosecutors don't even need to prove intent under this law to secure a conviction. Motive, right? And this is a great example for Jeff. He was just in the car. He didn't intend to murder. He didn't intend to rob. But he was party too as a getaway driver after the fact, right? So the wording of this law, as it's written, is so poor that not only does it make interpretation of the law ambiguous and difficult, but also poses the risk as well as the reality of it being unfairly applied. We'll let Terry explain. In Texas, you can be found guilty of a crime, like murder, for example, in three different ways. 
you can be the person that actually commits the crime, the perpetrator, or you can be found guilty under the law of parties, which is 702A, which means that you purposely had some kind of role in the situation. But then you have like the section 702B, which is what my brother was convicted of, says that in the attempt to like carry out conspiracy, so like robbery, but then another felony is committed by one of the conspirators. So Danny, like Danny went in and shot Chris. Anybody who was a party to that would be found guilty, even though they had no intent to commit murder. Jeff had no intent to commit murder, but it was in furtherance of an unlawful purpose. And he should have anticipated that it would happen. That's kind of saying that you have to be a mind reader. I could have a plan all I want to, or anybody can have a plan all they want to. But if you don't do it, then that ceases to be a plan. (laughs) And it's all of these little things that add up to why my brother is where he's at. To add fuel to the fire, it emerged that the state psychiatrist who testified at the punishment phase of Jeff's trial that he would be a danger to the community should he ever be released never even evaluated Jeff. But none of this came out until afterwards. In order to receive the death penalty, they have to prove that you were a future danger to society. So they brought in Dr. Grigson, and Dr. Grigson is dead now, but they call him Dr. Death. And he has a name because he goes in and he tells everybody that these people are cold-blooded killers and they are not repentant and, you know, they're going to be a future danger to society. So the jury also heard this man's case saying that my brother was a future danger to society, even though he never talked to my brother. He just came on as the expert, quote unquote, and passed himself off to be. He's testified in this many cases. He's done this and he's done that. So again, juries believed him. Now we have jurors that know better because we brought some stuff to light. So this stuff Terry's talking about was this doctor lying on the stand and giving misleading evidence in many, many, many cases beyond Jeff's. And this had got him expelled from top professional organizations, including the American Psychiatric Association and the Texas Society of Psychiatric Physicians. And this was three years before Jeff's trial. All of this happened. And nobody knew he continued to testify in criminal cases as an expert. And you know, he did so in Jeff's trial. So this revelation prompted three jurors to later say they would have disregarded Dr. Grigson's testimony in Jeff's trial if they'd known about his professional expulsion. I took French in high school, and I was so excited that we were going to France for Jack's wedding so I could practice my French, and it was only when I got there I realized just how rusty I'd gotten, and I wanted to communicate in French with the locals there so badly. If you can relate to this experience, then Rosetta Stone is right for you. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You can choose from one of 25 languages like Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. Fast-track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a quick and natural way. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Rosetta Stone is so convenient, and it can be used on your desktop computer or as an app, with audio companion and ability to download lessons offline. 
Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the First Degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. So if you're a super busy person and you don't have time to go to the gym, or maybe you just don't even want to go to the gym and work out in front of a bunch of different people, you need to check out the Aloe Moves app. I'm obsessed with this app. So it makes it easy to keep your wellness routine on track because they have everything in one place. There's yoga, there's Pilates, fitness classes, mindfulness, self-care tips, healthy recipes, and so much more. So either you're a beginner or you're an advanced person, Aloe Moves has the flow or class that will fit your schedule. Their classes range from five minutes to an hour, depending depending on what you're feeling that day. So even if you only have five minutes, you can just get some movement in. I used Aloe Moves all during the pandemic. It was amazing. Like I was on my yoga journey and I was obsessed with it. So you can find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and journaling for those quiet moments, even if you don't really want to get a workout on. And when it comes to sleep, it's just important as fitness and nutrition, and they've got you covered with Aloe Moves. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Aloe Moves. Go to Aloe Moves com and use code FIRST for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's allomoves.com, code FIRST, A-L-O-M-O-V-E-S.com, code FIRST. Given all you've heard so far, you'd think there would be many grounds for Jeff to file a successful appeal. But yet again, it seemed Jeff drew the short straw when it came to accessing any sort of adequate representation. He got a second attorney that he never met with. He doesn't even know the person's name, but that second attorney screwed him so bad that there's so many things that he can't bring up because it wasn't filed on time and it wasn't filed in the correct order. He is very (laughs) resentful, so are we. Again, another shortcoming of the system. As a result, in May of 2000, Jeff's petition was denied by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. And meanwhile, Danny had been sitting on death row, and he eventually reached the end of the line. After exhausting all of his appeals, the 27-year-old was executed on June 13, 2002. Before the execution, Jeff wrote his old roommate asking Danny to write a letter supporting Jeff's quest to be exonerated. But Danny was executed without ever responding to Jeff's letter. So meanwhile, I mean... Jeff has been convicted, sentenced to death. He's sitting on death row. And protective older sister Terry has been watching this unfold helpless, paralyzed by lack of recourse and financial resources to help her little brother escape death row and undo the injustice that's occurred. And to her horror, an execution date for her little brother was set. It was August 21st of 2008. The only option she had left at this point was to try to get as loud as possible in the hope that someone, anyone with power, anyone with the potential to help might listen. So when I found out that he got the execution date, I started writing other people besides representatives. And so I contacted like every single anti-death penalty organization I could find, every amnesty chapter that I could find. Things were looking dire as the date approached. And finally, the date arrived. The anguish that Terry felt when she went to say goodbye to Jeff was unbearable. 
Terry was so terrified about the prospect of leaving her little brother that prison guards had to physically escort her screaming and sobbing from the complex. I honestly can't imagine this. Like, this sounds like emotional torture. That's horrible. Yeah, it's just the fear and the anxiety and the trauma that this is why I I no longer believe in the death penalty. It's like, now Terry's fucked up. Like, that is a a devastating thing to experience that's going to stay with any person for the rest of their lives. It's just archaic and painful, I think, for more people than it is not. Yeah, it really is. It's unbelievable even reading it. Yeah. So at the 11th hour, though, a stay of execution was granted by a federal judge who allowed a new competency hearing on the basis that if Jeff had a delusional thought process, well, maybe they should review that. So the relief at hearing this, her brother's life would be spared at least temporarily. That was huge for Terry, but it was brief because the following hearing, the federal court determined that there was insufficient evidence to support Jeff's claim. And the parole board and then governor Rick Perry declined to commute Jeff's sentence and a new execution date was set. And I got to just comment again, this roller coaster is really psychologically tormenting for, I just really, I mean, Jeff's sake, any killer's sake and anyone who loves them and anyone watching really like that seesaw of like, you're going to die. You're not going to die. You're going to die. You're not going to die. Sounds so torturous. It it literally is torture. It's fucking crazy. Oh, it sounds like you'd just be numb and like in zombie mode. I don't even know what I would do. Right. So at this point, the clock was again, literally ticking for Jeff. Terry and her family made it their mission to do everything that they could to save Jeff's life. Terry quit her job to focus on the upcoming Texas legislation session. And every day she went to the Capitol, testifying at committee hearings and meeting with other death penalty abolitionists. It's important for us to point out that Terry isn't wanting anyone who deserves a punishment to escape the consequences of their actions, especially when the punishment does fit the crime. She's opposed fiercely to state-sanctioned murder, which is what she believes the death penalty is. I'm not trying to get anybody out of trouble. Like, you know, if you do something, you should be punished. But the punishment should be equal for everybody, rich or poor, black or white, the cost of the death penalty itself. The average is like $6 million plus, and it's rising. Despite Terry's tireless campaigning, in May 2016, it was announced that Jeff's execution was scheduled for August 24th, just three months away. And by this time, Terry had delivered a petition of 10,500 signatures protesting Jeff's sentence to the state governor, Greg Abbott. Yesterday, family members and others gathered outside the Capitol before taking the petitions to the governor's office. And Wood's brother-in-law, Stephen Bean, says Wood never killed anyone and that his co-defendant, Daniel Renault, solely to blame. Renault was executed for the crime in 2002. He wasn't given any proper representation, not adequate representation. At his trial, the judge deemed him incompetent to represent himself. So he had no defense. Days before Jeff's execution, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals granted him another stay of an execution, another ring around on this merry-go-round, like another emotional so crazy. Oh my God. Yeah. It's, it's really wild how, how they're able to boil down something as emotional and visceral and philosophical as like a flick of my pen on my court decision. Like this is so wild to me, the way this went down this time, the stay was granted as a result of the prosecution's use of Dr. Grigson, AKA Dr. Death 
his testimony against Jeff, they found that yes, it had been false and misleading. Things were looking encouraging when the state district court recommended that Jeff be granted relief from execution. But again, hopes were dashed when the Court of Criminal Appeals decided to uphold Jeff's death sentence. Jesus Christ. This is like the fifth time on this Ferris wheel. And life on death row for Jeff is grim to say the least. It's designed to break you down mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. So it really is no surprise that Jeff has tried to take his own life on several occasions. In Texas, death row is solitary confinement. So he has been in a cell smaller than my bathroom, more than 23 hours a day, every day for 25 years. Not allowed to be in a room like with anybody else. Nobody's touched or hugged him since he was originally arrested because on death row, you're never allowed to touch them. So like when we go to visit, like it's always through glass. Because in Texas, everybody thinks that people in prison, they have TV and they have this and they have that and they're in air conditioner and they get three meals a day and that's just crap. They have it really bad. Being in confined in that little space for 23 hours a day, solitary confinement is like death, slow death. In August of 2017, even the original prosecutor in Jeff's trial, who was now the district attorney, even she asked for Jeff's death sentence to be commuted. And she's the one who argued for it. She told the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles that at the original trial, she was inexperienced and she had no knowledge of the questionable character of Dr. Grigson. So she's blaming Dr. Death, the guy who argued that he'd be a danger to society during his penalty phase, part of the trial, right? Her request, the now DA, to commute his execution sentence was supported by both the chief of police and the presiding district court judge. So everybody's asking the parole board to do this. No one thinks this is a fair sentence. And on top of that, Terry has some other influential public figures on her side, including conservative Republican representative Jeff Leach. He's been helping the family through his bipartisan legislative work for the Texas House Criminal Jurisprudence Committee. Terry and Jeff also have strong vocal support from murder victim Chris Kieran's father, who also wants Jeff's sentence commuted. So slowly but surely, Terry is finally feeling like the needle is moving. So it wasn't really until this last legislative session that we had any kind of a headway. The powers that be, I write them religiously, and I don't write just my own. I write every single, every single decision maker that Texas has every time and for every single bill that I want something to do with. And I write one letter for each bill and I send it to everybody. I think it's pretty clear what a car crash, dumpster fire, and complete travesty this is when even a conservative Republican is working hard to get this man's sentence commuted. It really does say something, you know? Why would they care unless it was egregious? You know, they have other things to focus on. And it goes to show how deeply problematic this Texas law of parties is. If you're party to a capital or, you know, whatever serious offense murder, without proving motive, this can happen to you. And this is terrifying. Not everybody knows all of the laws. And more often than not, we have to actually educate people on the law of parties because they don't understand or realize that you can be sentenced to death for something that you didn't do. But a lot of them don't want to change it because they vote along party lines, and Texas is primarily Republican. 
and nobody wants to go against that. And even if they gave him robbery, right, which he did at gunpoint, it still shouldn't be 25 years in prison for a simple robbery. In 2018, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals rejected Jeff's most recent appeal to review his sentence. The court determined that because Dr. Grigson's testimony was given at the punishment phase and not the guilt-innocence phase, it carried little weight anyway. So I'm sure all of you listening, you're wondering, like, is there hope for Jeff? His family continues their ongoing battle with the Texas legislator, the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles, and Governor Abbott over the unconstitutionality of the death penalty being applied to convictions under this law of parties. So along with Representative Leach, anti-death penalty activists, senior clergy and faith-based organizations, as well as powerful media outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post, everyone's a part of this huge public campaign supporting Jeff's cause. In May of 2021, the Texas House of Representatives overwhelmingly passed a bill limiting death penalty eligibility under the law of parties. The House also directed the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles to review cases of prisoners previously sentenced to death under the law of parties. But it's yet to pass the Senate. Right now we're kind of on hold. But at the same time, even though we're on hold, he's still death penalty eligible. I want him home and I'm not going to stop until it happens. He needs to be home. He's already missed out on his daughter's life. He's missing out on his grandkids' life. He is not a future danger to society. He had no idea that this was going to happen. But we have a system that does not apply punishment equally for all citizens. If you're a person of color or if you're poor, you're not going to get justice in Texas. It does not happen. Jeff doesn't have a new execution date. So the question is... What can we do in the interim? So for Terry, community awareness and education are essential. It's not only Texas, not only Texas, but a lot of these representatives, they don't even read all of the bills. And so they vote on things that they haven't even read, you know, and half of the time their aides don't even write them. They go and they vote based upon party lines, which is why it's really important that people talk to them about things that are important to them. So what people can do is just write those Texas representatives. I want people to research different cases, not just my brothers. Some of them have already been executed. And there are people here that are killed, even though they never kill anybody. Right now, both Terry and Jeff are in emotional purgatory. Terry still goes above and beyond to be as loud as she can and be the best advocate for her little brother as she can. But the fight has come at a considerable personal and financial cost for Terry and her loved ones. Emotionally, I'm in that cell with him. We're awaiting a death sentence every day, but I'm worried about his mental state. It's absolute torture for them. There's no friendly ears. There's nobody there for them to talk to. I, I worry about him. And every time something comes up in the news, we're just as bad. We've been called names. We've had guns pulled on us. We've had people try to run us over in their cars. We receive hate mail because Jeff is labeled a convicted killer. Everybody assumes that he's a killer. The courage and tenacity of Terry is no doubt what led to the traction Jeff's case is getting. But the fight is far from over and there's still so much work to be done because the stakes have never been higher. If you'd like to help in Jeff's campaign for clemency, there's a bunch of things that you can do right now, today, because the Texas legislature is currently in session until May 29th. 
You can call, email, and write to the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles. You can also call, write, email, and tweet Texas Governor Greg Abbott, as well as share Jeff's story on your own social media accounts. We're going to include a link to the family's website, savejeffwood.com, which contains all of the contact information for the people that you need to reach out to who have the power to make a difference. And this will both be in our episode description and on our social media accounts. The level of injustice that Jeff and his family continue to live with day after day is heartbreaking. He's now been on death row in solitary confinement for 25 years. The death penalty is archaic at best, and most people assume it's only administered in the most egregious of cases, for the most culpable and the most disgusting, the most hated of offenders. But that's not true. And to apply it to a conviction under the law of parties is the very definition of cruel and unusual. Before we leave, though, and wrap things up, I want to truly congratulate Terry on all of the amazing work she's done. You're still being that incredible, loving, protective older sister that you always were, and you're doing a fantastic job. And a huge thank you to Terry for sharing her story with us. And we'll be sure to keep you updated on Jeff's story. If you're listening right now and you have a story to tell, you can email us hello at thefirstdegreepodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram. Join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon. Lots of fun bonus content for you over there. And stick around tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are Court Documents, The Texas Tribune, ABC News, The Kerrville Daily Times, PrisonsFoundation.org, The Intercept, The Guardian, ClarkProsecutor.org, Hill Country Community Journal, The Death Penalty Information Center, The Dallas Morning News, Amnesty International, The Washington Post, Bloomberg.com, Texas Monthly, The New York Times, WriteOnCrime.com, and CEJA Law Firm. And as always, our first three guests is always our largest source.